Hello, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Camilla Scanlon to discuss her chapter, Consent for Neurosurgery in Cases of Traumatic Brain Injury. This is co-authored with Cameron Stewart and Ian Carriage, and this chapter appears in a book entitled Traumatic Brain Injury. Hello, Camilla. Hello, Kate. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest in my chapter. Oh, absolutely. It was fascinating to read. Um, So to kick us off, how about um, you could describe to the listeners the kind of case that you present in the chapter that sort of helps to situate the topics that we'll get into around consent and brain injuries? Sure. Um, The... case that I present in the chapter is hypothetical, but it um, is the, the features of it are very, very realistic. So I think um, perhaps before I outline the case, maybe I can outline the um, cohort of people that are most affected by traumatic brain injury. Mm, yes, please. So, mm-hmm. so brain injury uh, occurs... Uh, over across a number of uh, different disease types and experiences, and it can be mild, moderate, or severe. So the sorts of uh, injuries we're talking about can come from uh, a person having an aneurysm, a bleed, or a stroke. What this chapter is specifically aimed at is people who have very traumatic Uh, brain injuries, and that's most often from uh, a violent situation or an accident of some sort. From the statistics, we know that um, young men are particularly prone to traumatic brain injuries because of their risk-taking behaviour. So the sociological uh, evidence tells us that um, young men in particular, um, hegemonic masculinity and uh, are likely to do uh, more risk-taking events than women or people of an older age. And the statistics show this up. Two out of three acquired brain injuries Um, have been acquired before the person is 25 years old. And three out of four of those people are men. Mm, So this is the cohort that we're really looking at when we're thinking about severe traumatic brain injury. Right. When uh, a person receives a traumatic brain injury, One of the problems is that there's very little space within the cranium. So the brain, all it can basically do is what's called contre-coup, which is move back and forth and shake about a little bit. So the injury becomes very acute in the brain, not only from the... um, position of the injury itself, but how the the brain can respond. Mm -hmm. The most dangerous traumatic brain injury 
or the one that ha has most catastrophic outcomes is a brain injury to the front of the brain because that frontal brain part is called the executive decision-making area. So that's why a blow, a severe trauma to the front of the brain can have all sorts of um, disabilities resulting from it. Mm -hmm. So these disabilities can be cognitive. It could be motor skills, and that might include um, resulting paralysis, emotional changes in the person, mm -hmm. and functional changes. So that can be um, so that the, the person is no longer able to um, toilet themselves or eat or bathe, dress. Uh, they may lose vision. They may lose balance and they may lose their hearing. Mm -hmm. From the emotional perspective, they uh, may become very irritable and they may lose their ability to control their temper. So we're looking at some very significant downstream effects of traumatic brain injury. Perhaps I could now uh, introduce you to the, the case. Mm -hmm. And uh, yep. So this is the story of um, Adam and Bethany. And they're a, a young couple. They have a two-year-old toddler. And Bethany's recently, recently given birth to uh, a two-month-old baby. Bethany has begged Adam to stop riding his motorcycle, but he finds it very difficult to give up. It's something he absolutely loves. He adores the exhilaration, that feeling of freedom as you lean into a corner and you're along straight away. So it's been very difficult for him to uh, oblige. And then one evening, Bethany's worst fears are realised when the police visit her home to tell her that Adam's been involved in a very serious bike accident. It would appear that um, as he was riding along uh, a wet road, it had recently rained, that his bike may have hit one of the light reflectors on the road. The bike has aquaplaned and has landed straight into a tree with Adam taking the full force of the impact on his head. The police believe that um, he probably would have been traveling about 70 kilometers an hour on impact. Adam was uh, unconscious when the paramedics arrived and he's been taken to um, a large teaching hospital he still hasn't regained consciousness. So Bethany arrives at the hospital to find um, Adam in a very frightening state. He's unconscious, he's got tubes, monitors, all sorts of things going on. And this is terrifying for her. The medical team have performed urgent screens and x-rays and images and found that he has um, a hematoma, um, a, a clot 
on one side of his brain and that is stopping blood circulate to another part of his brain. So this is quite, uh, has a very bad prognosis. The medical team has decided before Bethany arrives that um, surgery could save his life if it was performed fairly quickly. But with their experience and expertise, they feel quite sure that even if they are able to save his life, that he will be left with severe disabilities. It's impossible at this point for the medical team to say how severe, what exactly those, those uh, disabilities will be, other than based on their experience, there will be severe disabilities. Because the medical team have already ascertained that surgery could assist Adam, could save his life, they're prepared to offer that option to Bethany. So this is where we now need to think about consent and the role that consent plays. We know um, that legally, ethically and professionally, surgery can't be performed unless there has been consent for it to go ahead. Uh, and this relies or relates to uh, respect for patient autonomy. There are three elements of consent. One is, the first one is, that the person giving consent has to have the capacity, the mental capability of giving consent. The second element is that consent has to be voluntarily made. It can't be made under undue duress. And the third element is that the person has to have been provided with what's called material information. So all information that would be material to that person. So by that, it's meant that it would be relevant to that person's situation and to his or her decision-making capacity. We know, however, that um, Adam is unconscious. So clearly he cannot make these decisions on his own or can't make these decisions at all. So the law then makes allowances for a substitute decision maker to be able to make decisions in the case of when the person, him or herself, lacks capacity. So Camilla, just to um, kind of clarify for the, for the listeners, I think the, it sounds like the main dilemma, if we can put it that way, that Bethany faces is that the treating team has said that surgery on Adam is, could be appropriate because it might save his life rather than being a futile treatment. So they are offering the surgery because it could actually be life-saving in this case, but it will come at some sort of cost and it may be a very large cost. In fact, it could be quite severe disablement. Mm 
So Bethany is put in the position of needing to make the decision about whether or not she's going to basically consent on Adam's behalf. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And there are, there are two ways that she can do this. Uh, the law allows for um, the substitute decision maker to be uh, making the decision using, so in this case, Bethany, so she can use her own judgment to objectively and subjectively decide what is in the best interest of Adam. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, uh, the law says that um, the substituted judgment can be what um, Adam would have decided. Mm -hmm. So herein um, we have another thorny issue, and that is that on a number of occasions in the past, Adam has said that he would not want to live with a severe disability. Now, that statement was made publicly, uh, well, when I say publicly, in front of friends and family, um, on a number of occasions, uh, just as a matter of conversation. He hasn't written an advance directive. It would be unusual for a young man to have made an advance directive. But even if an advance directive is made, it's very hard at time A to predict how you're going to be feeling at time B mm -hmm. when circumstances could be quite different. Mm -hmm. So he now has two children. So maybe uh, his view would be very different about whether he would want to live or go on living with disability mm -hmm. or whether death was a better option for him. So in the chapter, I take it that the chapter doesn't set out to try to solve this because this is such an, a thorny issue. And I really, I mean, this, like you said, this kind of case is, drawn from fact, from real cases. Mm -hmm. So it's not even uh, an example that's, you know, out of this world. It's one that mm -hmm. people encounter. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just have so much compassion for people in that scenario. But so, so solving this issue sort of isn't what you're setting out to do. So I wonder, what did you hope to establish in the chapter? What were you trying to do in the chapter? We wanted to um, clarify that um, there are a number of things that happen in the consent process. And first of all, it, that consent is a process. Mm -hmm. It's not a quick and easy fix mm -hmm. when you need to have something done. And it's certainly not the signing of a piece of paper. It's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. And it has a number of functions. It allows for the respect of patients' aut autonomy, and that's its primary function, I would say. So it allows for the person to provide authorization for a procedure to go ahead. Probably a secondary function is that it requires 
the provision of material information. So this has to come from the attending physicians. It's their responsibility to make sure that the material information has been provided to the decision makers Mm -hmm. and that the decision makers can understand it and that they um, are sufficiently, sufficiently cognitive so that they can understand what the proposal is and what would happen if they didn't have the treatment. The person has to be able to be cognizant sufficiently to retain the information and then to be able to weigh that information as part of the decision and then has to be able to communicate that decision to others. Mm -hmm. So in this chapter, we see that um, not only are is consent looking to that primary function of respecting the patient's autonomy and the secondary function of the duty of the attending physicians to provide information. There is a third opportunity, and this is the creation of the opportunity to develop relationships between the medical healthcare professionals and the person making the decisions, that relationship should be one of, needs to be, and will ultimately have to be, one of trust and understanding. So the decision maker, be that the patient or a substitute decision maker, needs to ultimately trust that the healthcare professionals will be doing whatever they believe is in the best interest of the patient if consent to uh, actively treat is what the decision maker decides. So this is something that hasn't been discussed very much previously Mm. about this need for um, trust and understanding and how that comes to Uh, relationships between the patient or patient's significant others and the healthcare professionals. Mm, Interesting. So the chapter is kind of adding that into into the mix of um, what the point of consent is? Yes, yes, what the process of consent is, yes. That's really interesting. Um, We're nearly out of time here. So I guess I would like to ask you what the primary takeaway message is that you hope people will read, will, will glean when they read your chapter. And I wonder if it's related to that one. It is very much related to that one, Kate. Yes. Uh, This book is uh, targeting people who have an interest in traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. And that's a broad group of people. Uh, It includes patients who have previously had a traumatic brain injury who are um, negotiating their their new life as a result of that. Um, It's aimed at healthcare professionals, uh, but also aimed at the uh, circle, the uh, significant others of the patient. So hopefully it can highlight this area of... um, the third arm or the third function of uh, the process of consent and to hammer home (laughs) the idea that um, 
consent is very much a process and it needs to be worked through. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me about the chapter, Camilla. My pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the She Research Podcast. You can find Camilla's chapter linked in this episode's notes, along with a transcript of our conversation. SheePod is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.